Pursue peace with everyone and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. As we continue our quest to pursue holiness, today we encounter this third vision of the God of holiness. As we seek to be like God, in fact, to be like the God who said, be holy, for I am holy. As we pursue likeness of Jesus, the one in whom we perfectly see the God of holiness. Now, you might remember our first two visions, the very first one, we watched with Isaiah as he saw God in his temple. We saw Isaiah know himself to be ruined before the holy God and to understand that deeper holiness will lead us to a willingness to suffer for the gospel. Then last week we got to watch with Moses as God displayed his character, gracious, compassionate. If week one was God's appearance, week two was God's character, week three we see God's actions, John's vision of the end. Now we're going to follow the same outline, really the same structure as the last couple of weeks. Deeper holiness begins with gazing at the God of holiness Deeper holiness requires us to face our own unholiness. And deeper holiness will lead us to rejoice in our God. Now again, we're looking at Revelation chapter 19, the passage that Adam just read for us. And we're going to work through most of it as we work through those three headings and the first one taking up the most of our time. Deeper holiness starts with gazing at the God of holiness. We need to know who God is if we will become like him. And it's caught up in that one verse we get right at the start in chapter 19. After this, I, John, heard something like the voice of a vast multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation, glory and power belong to our God. Now I want to tease out those three words, salvation, glory and power as we gaze upon the God of holiness, as we see God displayed in these three attributes. Salvation belongs to our God. Now, in this chapter, salvation has two aspects to it, one of which we rarely think about. We usually think about the second, us being saved from our sin, but here salvation also includes the destruction of God's enemies. I guess it makes sense. If you are being persecuted, then to have the persecutor removed provides salvation. Salvation here includes the judgment upon God's enemies and the salvation, the wedding of God's people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Have a look firstly at verses 2 and 3. The salvation, that means judgment and condemnation upon God's enemies. Salvation, glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. because he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality. He has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. A second time, this loud voice says, Hallelujah! Her smoke ascends forever and ever. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Our world, in its opposition to the holy God, 
will one day face judgment. Chapter 18 in Revelation describes in great detail the fall of Babylon, this great city that is held up as the model of those who stand in opposition to God, this prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality, the one who led all sorts of nations to the worship of other gods. If we go back to chapter 18, verse 2, it has fallen, Babylon the great has fallen. She has become a home for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, and a haunt for every unclean and despicable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. The kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her. The merchants of the earth have grown wealthy from her sensuality and excess. Down in verse 5, for her sins are piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. Pay her back the way she also paid and double it according to her works. This prostitute who led others to worship gods other than the real God. Not necessarily gods in the sense we might think of entities or beings, but the God of greed, the God of sensuality and sexuality that our age worships the gods of beauty and comfort and hedonism. The salvation that God brings for his people begins with the judgment, with his true and righteous judgments upon those who are his enemies. You know, there's one thing that cannot be said of God and that is that he's not fair. His judgments are perfectly fair. They are righteous they are just. And he will, did you notice, avenge his people. He has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hand. Smoldering ruins are all that are left of God's enemies. Destruction forever as her smoke ascends. The salvation that is part of our holy God is in part horrible as his enemies are destroyed but with the destruction of God's enemies brings comes the redemption, the sanctification, the wedding of those who belong to him. Look down at verse 6 in Revelation 19. Then again I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, like the rumbling of loud thunder, saying, Hallelujah! Because our Lord God the Almighty reigns, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear bright and pure for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Deeper holiness begins with gazing at the God of holiness, the one who judges his enemies and who brings about the day of the great wedding for his people, who unites human beings like you and like me, to his own son, the God of compassion and of grace, is saving a people for himself. This picture at the end is is an image of what Paul talked about in Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 7 to 10, Paul lays out the big picture, what it is that God is trying to do 
What is it that God is seeking to accomplish in his creation? Ephesians 1 and verse 7, he says this, In him, in Jesus, we have redemption. We've been bought back through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ both things in heaven and things on earth, in him. In Jesus we have received an inheritance. We've been predestined to be in his. We've been united to the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the very plan of God, that we might be his people forevermore, as we saw last week, gazing upon God's face, dwelling delightfully before him, finding finally our perfect joy and fulfilment unmarred untainted in him. Deeper holiness begins with gazing at the God of holiness and seeing the salvation that he brings, the wedding of his people to the Lamb, the judgment upon his enemies. But it also includes looking at his glory. Salvation, glory and power belong to our God. And I want to pick up that idea with just one or two little verses. Do you notice what happened next in our passage in Revelation 19? Verse 9, the angel who was showing John these things, the angel said to me, right, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He said to me, the words of God are true, right? How good is it for those who get to join in? And John is so excited about it in verse 10, then I fell at his feet to worship him. Understandable perhaps? a being of great glory and power in his own right, who brings instruction from God, who declares how good it is to be one of his people. But the angel said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I mean, I wonder, John seems to freak the angel out a little bit. Whoa, whoa, no! Don't do that! Which, by the way, is a parent's favourite Bible verse. Revelation 19.10, do not do that. The Bible says it, do not do that. Also an exercise in the dangers in misquoting the Bible. No, worship God alone. Glory is God's. Worship belongs to him and to him alone. You know, it raises the question, what is worship? Worship God. What does that mean? It's a little bit unfortunate, I think, the way we use the word worship these days. For many Christians, the word worship is synonymous with music at its, at its kind of lowest, the experience in the church meeting. Even the church meeting itself might be called right, a, a worship service or a time of worship which I think is misleading. It's not, it's not wrong, per se. What we do in church can be worship. When we sing songs, they can be worship. But to call it that is to miss the point. You see, in the Bible, the word worship is pretty much always connected to one picture, to one act of the people of God. And that is to bow, to fall before God. It's even there in our passage. Look back at verse 4. Right, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped. 
That's what you do. You, 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 you bow prostrate. That is what you are doing. In chapter 10, when John says, "What well, I fell at his feet to worship him. This is what we are doing. In other words, it's a picture that symbolizes our lives given to God. Bowing before him with all that we are. Romans chapter 12 picks up this idea, I think very helpfully. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may discern what is the good, pleasing and perfect will of God. That is, to worship is to give all that we are to God. Is to be like Moses was last week. God, we are your possession. All that I have and all that I am. To worship is the act of submitting your life to God. Which I think is why it's so sad if we limit worship to what happens in the meeting, to the songs, to the time of experiencing God. I, that's such a small component. It ought to be worship, but it ought to be worship because all of our lives are worship. To walk down the street thinking, how am I going to be like the Lord Jesus Christ and serve God and serve others? That is worship. To, to delight in prayer and depend upon our God bringing all that we are and all that we have and the people around us to our God, as the Lord Jesus did. That is worship. To stay up late looking after someone who's sick, to love them as Jesus loved us, that is worship. Glory belongs to our God and the glory of God demands all of us. You want to worship God? Then wake up each day and remember, I am God's. All that I am, all that I have, all that I dream, all that I hope, all that I decide, all that I choose, I will live for him. Deeper holiness begins with gazing at the God of holiness as we see the God who is salvation and who is great glory and the God who is the God of power. There's a great line in a, in a C.S. Lewis story, the, the, when the Narnia Chronicles, I don't know if you've come across them, in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, there's a moment where the characters have to be reminded about the main character, Aslan, who's a lion, and he's quite clearly meant to be like God. He's not a tame lion, they get told. We sometimes like to domesticate God. The smiling, loving, kind, generous, the one who is for us, you know, Jesus, he's my bro, he's got my back. Yeah. The God of holiness is terrifying. Look at what happens in verse 11. I saw the heavens opened. There was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True. And he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes are like a fiery flame. Many crowns are on his head. He has a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. 
He will trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. He has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. There's a blending of imagery here. It's God's attributes with, well, Jesus' names. Here is the king of Psalm 2. Here is the one by whom God reigns. This is God's world. And he will not brook resistance. As he comes to judge, he's a terrifying sight. I mean, the, the names of this rider, faithful and true, the word of God, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Even, even the name that no one knows except himself is a powerful name. It's a bit strange, actually, that verse. Why does he have a name that no one knows, but then we get told a whole bunch of other ones of his names? I think it's to do with uh, back in chapter 2 and verse 17 of Revelation. Right, chapter 2 and verse 17. In one of the letters we read this, Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. To the one who conquers, that one has a name written that no one knows except himself. Here is the conquering, almighty, all-powerful ruler of the world. The nations, they make their plans. The Lord scoffs. He has enthroned his king, the one who will rule with an iron scepter, the one who will crush all opposition. Deeper holiness begins with gazing at the God of holiness, the God to whom belong salvation and glory and power. And so deeper holiness requires us to face our own unholiness. Now the last two weeks, in some ways, have been directed at God's people. It's required God's people to face our own unholiness. Isaiah, a prophet of God, was undone. He he thought himself dead, and yet he had his sin forgiven by God. Moses, if you remember, right? You cannot see my face, God said, for you will die if you do so. And yet, as we saw by the end, God's people gazing upon his face. This week, though, I want to speak to you for a moment if you are not part of God's people. Now, let me be clear what I mean by that. I don't mean by God's people that that you go to church. That's kind of irrelevant, really. Or that you believe God is there. Even that is not really what I'm talking about. To be one of God's people is to be in relationship with God, a living, true, daily, deep relationship where you love him where you serve him, where you are dedicated to him, where you worship him, all that you are and all that you have is given to him. A relationship that you have entered into through giving your life to Jesus. If that's not you, then I want to talk to you for a moment. I want to call upon you to face your unholiness. Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. God is not a pet or a toy, or a genie that you can call upon in a time of need when you need a parking space and then ignore. 
God is not somebody that you can play with. Well, maybe today I'll think about you, maybe tomorrow I won't. God is a consuming fire. Now, today, right now, as you're watching this, the moment that you have, God is being patient with you. He's he's allowing your unholiness to continue because he wants you to come home. He wants you to find the Lord Jesus. He wants you in this relationship with him. But don't be fooled because today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow, Babylon will be destroyed. Don't find yourself in it. Don't find yourself at the receiving end of this sharp sword that comes from the mouth of the rider. Don't find yourself at the receiving end of the iron rod. Don't find yourself as a grape in the winepress of the fury of God. Don't stand unholy before the rider who judges, but rather instead gaze upon the God who brings salvation please, who has paid in the Lord Jesus Christ everything necessary to bring you out of unholiness and into the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Deeper holiness begins with gazing at the Lord of holiness. Deeper holiness requires us to face our own unholiness. But you know what? Deeper holiness leads us to rejoice in the holy God. It's a marvellous chapter, this one. The people who are gathered around God, you, you hear them declaring, Hallelujah! Praise our God over and over again. Praise our God in verse 5. All of his servants, the ones who fear him, small or great, praise him for who he is and for what he does. Praise him for the fact that his enemies will be destroyed. I don't know that I instinctively feel that one, that I instinctively feel a sense of joy at the thought of God's enemies being destroyed. That I don't think to say to God, well done. But I think that that problem is mine, not God's. I don't have a deep enough sense of the war that humanity has waged against God. Chapter 18 and verse 24, again, this description of what Babylon did. In her was found the blood of prophets and saints and all those slaughtered on the earth. Chapter 19, verse 2, God avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. Hallelujah, friends. Praise our God for he reigns. Salvation and glory and power belong to him. And those who are arrayed against him will find their end, even as God's people are wedded to the Lamb. Rejoice. Rejoice in who our God is. Let us be glad and rejoice. Does that mean have a shallow, empty happiness all the time? Be known as the one who... Always has the smile painted on. No, that's not what it means. It's born out of a deep truth. It's born out of a certain knowledge that the war against evil is won and that God's people are redeemed, saved, washed clean, united to Christ. 
that that future, the glorious, beautiful, marvelous, fantastic future we have in God is assured, is a certainty, is ours. Now, I hope these last three weeks have been of encouragement and challenge to you. But it doesn't stop here. That you continue to gaze upon the God of holiness. That you continue to look to Jesus, the one in whom God's glory is revealed. That you continue to face your own unholiness, fleeing your sin, fleeing to the mercy of God who saves. That you might be willing to suffer for the gospel that you might be bold in serving others, that you might rejoice, praising our God, the God to whom belongs salvation and glory and power. Let's pray. Thank you, our Heavenly Father, for who you are and for this vision of what it is that happens in the end, of your victory over evil, of your redemption of your people, of your glory displayed that you are the only one that we are ever to worship. Father, lead us into deeper holiness that we might be ever more like you. Amen.